thank you, Carol, and thank you, Marcelo, for the ministry you're doing, amongst others, at the prison ministry. Connection lunch today, wings, that, has, that sounds like an Ivan idea. Um, so looking forward to wings, but more looking forward to meeting those who want to connect, so join us after the service. We are in the midst of our Flourishing Faith series, this Lenten series that journeys to the cross, the center of our faith. Um, We talked about Jesus and the cross being the center, and when I say the cross, I mean both his crucifixion and his resurrection. Last week, we talked about faith as a verb instead of a noun. If we think of faith as a noun, then I have it or I don't have it, but thinking of it as a verb allows it to stretch, allows it to grow, allows us to press in, to have questions, to dig deeper, and to not be nervous about that. We've talked these last two weeks about the components of faith. There's a belief component, there's a trust, there's an actions, and there's an obedience component. And each of them has a role in our faith. Now, we're going to jump into a story with Jesus and Martha and Mary. But before we do, let's pray. God, I thank you that you are here today. I thank you that we get to be together because of who you are, God. We get to be together, and we get to be the body of Christ, so we thank you for your presence. Allow us to learn and to grow more closer to you today. In your spirit, we pray, amen. All right, so as I unpack this story, as we read the scripture, I want you to have a question in your mind. What does faith look like for Martha in this story? What does faith look like for Martha? Now, this story is where... Lazarus is sick, and Martha and Mary send word to Jesus. Jesus is friends with all of them. And by the time Jesus arrives, he, Lazarus, is already dead. And we pick up the scene right there, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I want to pause there before we jump into the next verse. I was reading N.T. Wright this week, and he talks about this as being the if-only moments that we have in our own lives, but Martha has right there. If only you had been here earlier, you could have done something. If only. And we might have our only if, er, <laughs> we might have our own if-only moments. If only my loved one wouldn't have gotten cancer. If only I wouldn't have lost my job. If only I'd picked a different career. We can have if-only moments in regards to our faith as well, not just the circumstances or suffering that can stretch our faith, but conflict of ideas. How do I reconcile scriptures that seem in opposition to each other? What do I make of the Old Testament and the New Testament? And these questions are always very personal. And so when I'm sitting down with somebody who is in an if-only moment, it's not just about the idea or the doctrine or the theory. It's about what are you walking through right now? And if you're walking through something right now, I am glad that you are here. 
If you have somebody that is walking with something that's an if-only moment, be a listening ear. Be God's compassion to them in this, because we don't know how the story will end. The passage continues. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask, Martha says to Jesus. Jesus said to her, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So here, Jesus has said, your brother will rise again. And Martha goes to this idea, this doctrine, this belief about the resurrection. See, Jews before Jesus believed in the resurrection. It's talked about in the Old Testament. And yet there was debate among the Jews about whether it was something they could believe in or not believe in. There's a story of Jesus talking about this with the religious leaders, and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees did, and he gets them started in a debate, and, and he gets slips away. And so Martha's engaged in this topic. Yeah, 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 I, I believe in the resurrection. She believes in that idea. Uh, I was looking at Sky Jathani this week. He is an author. He was a pastor. He has a great um, right now curriculum called With, and we've talked about his book in the past. And, and he has this reflection on this passage. He says, our instinct, like Martha's, is to depersonalize our faith, to make it more about intellectual agreement with a set of ideas and about intimate communion with the risen Jesus. So she's talking about this idea of resurrection, and sometimes maybe we can get trapped in this as well. But we'll see, Jesus wants to shift that focus. Verse 25, he says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is asking her that question, and Jesus can ask that question to us today. See, Jesus shifts Martha's thinking from an idea, a doctrine, to a belief in a person, to a belief in him, Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't so interested, does she believe in the resurrection or not, but does she believe in him? Because that is where true life is found. Jesus doesn't try to convince Martha or the Sadducees in the New Testament about this idea, but he does want to know what do they think about him. Oswald Chambers wrote, My Utmost for His Highest. Anybody read this classic devotional? Oswald Chambers was an early 20th century pastor and classic devotional that's still in print today. He says this, there's a difference between devotion to a principle and a devotion to a person. Jesus Christ never proclaimed a cause. He proclaimed personal devotion to himself. And this is what Jesus is asking Martha in this story. What does she think about him? And how does Martha respond? We hear her response in verse 27. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She does believe. We see this growth of her faith in a very short amount of time. 
And Jesus is simply saying, don't put your trust in a theological idea. Put your trust in me. Jesus met her in her if-only moment. He meets her in that place. And he wants her to put her trust in him. He's challenging her to say, if only to be if Jesus. If Jesus is present with you in the if only, that makes a huge difference in our lives and how we live. When did you last have an if only question? In your home, in your workplace, in your family? How does Martha's faith change during this journey? She comes to Jesus. She's desperate. And often that's when we come to Jesus, when we're desperate, when we've tried everything else. And she talks about this idea of resurrection. She's misunderstanding what Jesus is asking. And then he makes it more clear. Believe in me. So we see this faith journey that Martha is on, and I want to kind of um, use this three boxes. This journey is not original to me. This comes from uh, Old Testament professor at Duke, Walter Brueggemann. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And there's everything in between. These are in three boxes, but we don't always fit neatly into three boxes. Um, but I think it's helpful for us. Now, as a pastor, it's both a joy and a challenge to be a pastor because I have people in every one of these boxes right here today. Now, I don't know percentages of which are in which. And so some things I say might be an incredible comfort to one person. That very same thing might be quite disruptive to another. And part of the, the joy and challenge of being in community with people that are different is you get the same experience. Maybe it's in a life group. Maybe it's on a Sunday. Maybe it's in relationship. And we recognize that not everybody's in the same place. But I think we benefit from that, that diversity. We get to press deeper. We get to ask good questions. We get to still bring Christ's presence and his compassion and his love to whatever situation we are on. So what are these three boxes? We're going to unpack more of this over the coming weeks as we look at different stories of people going through this growth in their faith. So the first box, orientation. And if you come up with better labels for these, um, please let me know. This is original with Brueggemann. Um, so what does orientation mean? Basically, God is reliable. World is well-ordered. Meaning and purpose are pretty straightforward when you're in this place. From a biblical perspective, we look at the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs is really in this space of orientation. You work hard, good things happen to you. If you're lazy, bad things happen to you. It's very black and white. Now, most of us spend a large part of our lives in this place. Things are settled. Things make sense. If you live well, it tends to go well for you. We can see this in uh, Psalm 119.1 as well. Blessed are those 
whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. There's a blessing that comes from walking with the Lord. Things work out. And if you grew up in, you know, a, a functional home, loving parents, you probably started off in this place. There was a safety there that gave you an ability to explore outside. You, you grew up with a good, solid grounding of orientation of who you are and the world is a good place to be in for you. Now, the problem is, is life doesn't always stay that well-ordered. Things get chaotic. We can see things collapsing around us, whether it's political struggles, economic issues, social events, our own lives, our own health, perhaps our own faith. But life is not going as planned. God has not shown up in the way that you wanted. And how do we navigate that? In orientation, doubt is seen as weakness, right? Or a problem to be solved. Here, I encourage people to have a curiosity towards doubt. So those of you that maybe didn't grow up in a Christian home but came to faith at some point, you had a faith in something, right? Maybe it was a faith in self or a different religion or maybe a faith that there was no God. And when you had doubts when you were in that place, you probably didn't want to address them, right? Because they conflicted with your worldview. But at some point, those doubts led you to explore the Christian faith, if that is your journey. You had a curiosity, wait, this doesn't make sense, or something hasn't worked in my life. Well, this happens with the Christian journey as, as well. And I encourage people to have a curiosity there. This is a, a season where we might complain to God. We might plea for God to intervene. We were singing Oceans earlier, where our faith just doesn't feel strong enough when we need God's encouragement to strengthen us because this is a difficult experience to go through. Our beliefs can be challenged. Our trust can be challenged. These can throw us into disorientation. I had a friend in college. I went to Wheaton, a conservative evangelical school in the U.S. In our first theology class, we were having our views challenged, and my views were challenged. And I thought, oh, wow, this is bringing a whole different perspective on my faith. And one of my classmates, his, his structure was even more sort of rigid than my structure was. And he had all of these things in this bucket of, if you're a good Christian, you have to believe all of this stuff. And he was challenged to think deeper, to dig, to answer these questions. But his faith was like a house of cards. And it's like you removed one of them and the whole thing collapsed. Because in his mind, it was like, wait, this one thing doesn't make sense anymore. And if you lied to me about this one thing, then I can't trust you about any of it. All of the beliefs mattered the same amount. And he walked away from his faith. I have a heart for people that have been grown up in those systems that doesn't center Christ. I walk with other people all the time where their faith is challenged because of circumstances in their life. Things have not gone according to plan. Something horrible happened. They may blame God for that horrible thing. 
These are always very personal stories and very challenging situations. Maybe life has gone on pretty well, but you get to a point where maybe it wasn't some big catastrophe, but you're just like, there's no more meaning or purpose. This, this is all there is. We see this with King Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He had everything, and he had prayed for wisdom. He should be the wisest person, and he was wise. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 and 2. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, no one has ever asked me to do a preaching series on Ecclesiastes. Yeah? Wow, that's encouraging, right? Woo! That's hard, right? He'd come to this place where he had everything, but life was not working anymore. When you're in disorientation, you can't work your way out of it. You can't just hope things are going to get better and try to make it happen on your own. It can be a wilderness, and you don't see the end of that wilderness. But here's the good news. God does some of his best work when we are in the wilderness. When we are in those places, we become more open for God to do what he wants to do. We were singing earlier, and the song, these lyrics had never struck me in quite the same way as they did today. We were singing, make room to do whatever you want to. We sing it. (laughs) Do we really mean it? Do whatever you want to, God, so I can be closer to you. Break down the walls of my tradition. Shake the ground, right, of my tradition, We sing it, but do we really mean it? No, usually we want something pretty comfortable, pretty solid. We want life to be ordered. Because this wilderness place is hard. It is not easy. But we don't do it alone. We can do it in community. There's lots of great resources, too, um, that I'm looking at right now. Faith After Doubt and field notes for the wilderness. If you are in disorientation, you don't have to go through it alone. I was never really discipled into this phase before. I experienced this phase, but I didn't know how to navigate it. I had to press in. I had to ask questions. I had to find people that had capacity to mentor me in this phase because it can feel scary. It can feel like you don't know where it's going. It is, in fact, risky. But the wilderness can grow us and stretch us like no other place. We see David pouring his heart out to God. Psalm 86, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. There's a real dependence and reliance on God to show up in ways that you need him to. I encourage people in this phase, one, not to do it alone, but two, to pray honestly with God, to turn off the editor. Sometimes, you know, in my prayer life, I can present to God what I think he wants to hear, right? I leave the worst stuff, you know, outside the door and pray, you know, trying to pray more spiritual. But David doesn't do that. Like, imagine writing an angry email that hopefully you don't send, and you look at it the next day and you edit it. 
what I'm encouraging you to do is to, to give God the rough draft because he can hear it. He wants to meet you in the real place that you are in. Be authentic with him. This can be a disruptive place. We have a desire for order, for control, for normalcy. If you had a chaotic childhood, if your life started in sort of this disorientation, it can be even more challenging to want to hold on to things that just make sense. And we see so much more disruption around the world. I'm concerned sometimes for our young people and their sense of hopelessness. But here's the thing, disorientation can't be skipped. It would be nice to go from orientation to reorientation, but we have to go through this valley. So what is on the other side of this valley? Reorientation. There's a renewed meaning. There's a reordering of life. Things begin to feel settled. There's a newness there. You recognize doubts as a part of life to be addressed, but they don't have to derail you. There's less innocence, less naivete, but more meaning and a renewed purpose. I know that God has used the seasons of disorientation in my own life to incredibly stretch me, to break down my own walls and to grow my heart deeper. The experience of the wilderness changes you because we also get to experience God's grace in that difficult place. When you're in reorientation, you begin to be able to see God as Isaiah expresses in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We recognize that there is mystery to God. It's why John says, nobody has seen God until they've seen Jesus, but we recognize there's still so much we don't know. We don't know what it looks like when God is sovereign, but there's still evil in the world. That's a hard question to answer. And yet we can be humble and recognize that we don't have all the answers, that God is wiser than us, that there will always be some mystery. I was thinking about these three boxes in the context of Job, the famous person in the Old Testament. We see Job in all three of these categories. We see Job's life going well. He's working hard. He's righteous. He loves God. And then we see Satan say, oh, he only does that because everything's going well in his world. And he asked permission to disrupt Job's life, to move him into disorientation because Satan is convinced that will be the end of his following. So Job's life is disrupted. And his friends come and his friends, you know, to their credit, they are silent. I think it's for like seven days. They don't give advice. We, I tend to give advice much sooner when I'm walking with somebody. 
But then when they start speaking, they go back to this orientation. You must have done something wrong, Job. These bad things wouldn't have happened to you if you had lived your life righteously. So repent, right? They're telling him, you got to go back to this place. And Job is like, I did not do anything. Job himself gets angry at God and questions God, pours his heart out to God. Things are turned upside down. The old wisdom that he drew from isn't meeting him, isn't ministering to him in this place. And guess what happens? God does show up. And here's the thing. God didn't actually answer any of Job's questions. <laughs> you know, I love this about our scriptures. Like, if you were going to make something up, like make up a religion, you probably wouldn't include stories like Job's. There's a realness here. It's not on the marketing materials that we might have a life like Job's, right? And God doesn't actually answer his questions, but God sort of reiterates what we are reading in Isaiah, he challenges Job that, does he think Job knows more than God does? Does he really think he has the perspective of God and how God works? And we see Job coming to this new orientation of his life. He's reoriented. He has a renewed picture of who God is. He has a new perspective of what God is like. So wherever you might be in that journey, and sometimes it's parts of ourselves or, you know, sort of in one part and parts of ourselves in the other. Um, it's not sort of clear cut as three tidy boxes, but sometimes they'll have a part of us that is going through this. And we come back to Jesus at the center. We come back to Jesus's question from Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. When a seed falls to a ground, right, it must die in order to give life. And going from one to the other can sometimes feel like a death. But we don't do it alone. Jesus does it with us. He goes with us. So whichever place you might be in today, meet Jesus in that place. Because he meets you in that place. Because of his grace, you can have faith in him. Because of his grace, you can trust in him. You can believe in him and you can follow him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your incredible love. I thank you that you met Martha and that you meet us. Sometimes you show up in ways we don't understand or we didn't ask for. Martha had a very clear picture of how she wanted you to show up, but you drive her into deeper questions and you drive her into true faith in who you are. God, and I pray wherever each of us might be today, that you reveal yourself to us in ways we can understand that your Holy Spirit will come and minister to us wherever we might be, because we know your great love is so generous with us. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.